I will tell you that I have 10 pages of notes and 35 minutes to go through them. If there are things that, because I will not cover every little detail, if you would like a copy of these notes, just email the church and uh, we'll send them to you. Uh, There'll be a lot of the background uh, things that I will not be able to talk about today. I'll mention them, but won't be able to go into detail. I didn't realize this when I talked last week, as I do each year, about being into the Word of God and challenged you that the Word of God was progressive revelation, that it was to be taken in context, and when the plain sense made common sense, seek no other sense, and that it needs to be in the light of related scriptures. I did not realize what I had set myself up for because this passage, the first seven verses in particular, that we're going to look at from Genesis 6, absolutely require using all of those things to make sure that you don't come up with some bizarre kind of interpretation for this scripture. I purposely use the uh, title here as a play on words, because if you remember your scripture or you've looked ahead... This is where King James Version says there were giants in the land of those days. Other versions say Nephilim. Neither one of them is a great translation. Uh, They weren't necessarily, the word doesn't mean giants. And uh, Nephilim is simply taking a Hebrew word and making it into English, a transliteration. So nobody really knows exactly how to pronounce, uh, not pronounce, but to uh, translate uh, that passage, but we will look at exactly what they are, and uh, I believe that you will hear some things today that you may have not heard before. There are a lot of things that have been said about this passage that are simply not true and can be verified to be not true, and there are some very important things that get missed because they get lost in some irrelevant details. Here's what it comes down to. Spiritual discernment is the most important thing in your life. You go, I don't see it in that passage. Hopefully you will when we're done. But the truth is, I'd like us just to begin because, uh, as I said, the the amount of time, I want to cover this all as a package, so I don't want to divide it in half. If you would follow with me in Genesis chapter 6, I'm just going to start reading at verse 1 through verse 7, and then we'll go back and look at it. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives from themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were mighty men, who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'm going to end with that one because I never like to let a message come to an end without at least a twinge of hope. Noah found grace or favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. And in the midst of what is chaos, what is continually downhill, what is a big disaster, there was one person who stood out. And I have to tell you the bottom line. I told you spiritual discernment. It doesn't matter how bad things look. God wants you to be light and salt. In the midst of everything going downhill, there was still at least one man who stood against that. I will tell you, as I studied Genesis chapter 6, I go, what else is new? It sounds like America today. It sounds like the world today. The names have been changed. A little bit different circumstances, different technology. But the truth of the matter is, things look bad. That doesn't mean that we cannot and should not take a stand, whether it's as individuals or as a church. I am thoroughly convinced, uh, and you'll hear why here in a few moments, that when the church joins the culture in going downhill, we're in really big trouble. As long as the church is strong, the culture, the land, the nation, the political things have a chance. But when the church just joins in the downhill slide, we're all in for a big, rude awakening. We know what the rude awakening here was. It was the judgment after 120 years of warning that God just totally wiped everyone out. So let's go back and look at this chapter and begin with fact number one. This is about human beings. As you look through this passage, and not only what I read, but continuing on, and before it started, this is about human beings. Angels are not mentioned. And you go, what about sons of God? We'll get to those in a moment. But the truth of the matter is, it's flesh. It's mankind that is judged. It's not angels. It is always talking about those that were created that are a part of the land. And as we look at it, it is... The evidence is overwhelming. First of all, this is the original population explosion. I remember in our lifetime. Remember when population explosion is going to kill the earth? Remember that? It's still on, I guess. People still procreating. But the original came way back here. And it is in fulfillment of what God had told Adam and Eve to do. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what they did. A few weeks ago, we talked about why did man live so long? We don't know all the factors, but I believe one of them is simply that God wanted them to be able to do exactly what he asked them to do, and that is multiply and fill the earth. And that's what they were doing. And so there is a population explosion. They began to fill the earth. It's mankind. It's not any other creature. It is the normal process that began in the two chapters before that. You'll remember chapter 4 is the genealogy of Cain, the one who rebelled and sinned and just went against God and refused to repent. And his relatives, his descendants, his genealogy shows exactly that. They did great things. Remember, they, technology was great in those days for those guys. On the other hand, chapter 5 is the genealogy of Seth. And there we have, and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And Enoch walked with God and he was not before God took him. Find all those kinds of things. A godly line, a godly genealogy. And they continued in that direction until 
we get to chapter 6. But chapter 6, remember this, there's no break. There's, the original had no chapters and verses. It's simply the line of Seth, and it continues right down to Noah. And that's all we're doing. So it's just a continuation of chapter 5 in Seth's lineage. Remember that as we look at this. What follows in chapter 6 is not what God had expected them to do. God had expected the godly line of Seth to continue in that direction. But they did not. He also knew that those that followed in the line of Cain would continue doing that. But now we have an intermixing of the two. And in this case, like I said, with the church goes downhill, everything's going downhill. If you go downhill, and if the godly line goes downhill, there is not much hope. I said not much. There is hope because Noah is the shining example of what is possible. So it's man that's the focus. This is not about angels. I've been taught that. You have probably heard that. You may have been taught that. You today may believe that as you're sitting there. If you have questions, you can ask me later, but I think by the time we're done, you will understand. First of all, I already mentioned the context is not about angels. It's about two lines of people. The context is only about mankind and flesh, nothing else. Mankind is judged as the guilty ones. And if you believe that the sons of God are angels in this case, then why didn't God judge angels? Because they would have been the ones that would have caused all the havoc. Man is judged. The next one is simply this. Angels don't have genetic materials. They don't reproduce and they don't marry. They were created as they are. In fact, is angels don't have the possibility of redemption. They are created beings. They are personal beings. They have a will, and they could choose to rebel against God. They, some of them did. But they didn't have what you and I have. We have the possibility of being a sinner saved by grace. They don't know that. In fact, as the Bible tells us, it's something that is so mysterious to them, they long to look in it. They just can't grasp it because they don't understand how God could be so gracious and loving and kind and merciful to us, sending Christ to die for us. They don't understand that. But angels don't have the possibility of doing what many have taught. Also, going way back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, all creation... All creation produces after its own kind and only after its own kind. And you might, if you weren't here, say, what about mules? They came from donkeys and horses. But that's the end of the line. It just doesn't work. The truth of the matter is, angels don't have the possibility of doing this. There is no miracle indicated here or anything like that. It's simply, it doesn't fit the context. And angels are not a part of what is being judged. If you noticed in the last part of what I read, it simply says all those things that were a part of the land are those things that are being judged. Man and animals, those things that breathe, not angelic beings. And one last thing. I already mentioned this, and you'll hear it over and over again in the sermon. The lack of spiritual discernment is what is being pointed out in this process. 
You say, how can you verify that? How do you know that that's absolutely true? Because at the end, it just simply says, all the intents and the thoughts of man's heart were continually evil. And God got to the point, he says, I've had it with you. That's why I can, with dogmatism, say the lack of spiritual discernment and spiritual decisions is the real issue that needs to be addressed from this chapter. So what about the sons of God? Are they angels? Always a question that has to be asked. The answer is, there are places in the Bible where angels are called sons of God. If you were to go to Job chapter 38, verse 7, you would find that to be true. It says that the morning stars and the sons of God sang when the foundation of the earth was laid. There were no people, no other kind of created beings at that point. Only angels. And so unfallen, untainted, non-sinful, non-rebellious angels are indeed called sons of God. So there is that possibility. But it's not the only place that the term sons of God is used. First of all, they would have to be evil angels. Nowhere in the Bible are demons, evil spirits, fallen angels, seen or called sons of God. Nowhere else. You would have to go to this passage and it would kind of stand there out on its own. Uh, There is no such thing in the Bible. One of the other possibilities that people use, and they go to Jude chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it simply says there are angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode. He is kept under eternal bonds, under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. Notice what it does and doesn't say. It doesn't say cohabited with female human beings. doesn't say that. It has to do, and notice the key phrase there, I underlined it, proper abode. They didn't keep their proper place. What was their proper place? They were created and lived and existed in the presence of God in heaven. They chose to rebel, and as a result, Satan and those that rebelled with him were cast out of heaven. That was their proper abode. They were cast out of it. They didn't keep it. They were not willing to see themselves as the highest of creation, but they wanted to be, and they followed Satan in his rebellion. They wanted to be like the Most High. They wanted to usurp authority that was not theirs. And it says they're kept in eternal bonds for the judgment of the great day. I know from Matthew chapter 25 that it says that the lake of fire, which we normally call hell, is prepared for the devil and his angels. That doesn't mean people don't go there, but the original intent of the lake of fire was for the devil and his angels, those that rebelled against God. That's what it was for. Those that rebel against God as human beings also uh, spend their eternity there. I already mentioned this one where the sons of God are referring to angels. And the sons of God are used in various other ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Without looking, and you can get my notes, they're they're all on my notes, but here's what it comes down to. The nation of Israel as a whole were called the sons of God. Now, 
Here's what you need to understand. The God's chosen people, yes, they always were and still are and always will be God's chosen people. That hasn't changed at all. But were they all godly people? The answer is no, they were not. In fact, just read the Old Testament and you'll find out that more often than not, they were stiff-necked and rebellious and just fighting against God. But it doesn't mean that they weren't called the sons of God because they were specific people called out by God for his purpose. And so the whole nation, godly and ungodly people, were called the sons of God. I'm refer- I encourage you to look at when it says the sons of God here to be the godly line of Seth, but we're not living that way. And I believe that is the moral of the story here. Second thing in the New Testament... Those that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior are called the sons of God. We can find that in many different places. I'll just refer to one. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's no doubt about it that righteous people, godly people, Christians are called sons of God. And... Also, those that already have their glorified bodies are also called sons of God. It's the same passage where it refers to angels, that people will be like the angels in the resurrection. They neither marry nor given in marriage. But that same passage says that uh, they neither can die anymore, for they are like the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so sons of God is used in numerous ways. The context is going to dictate how that is used. Is it angels or something else? One more thing. When it uses the word son, and this refers to the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the concept of son has more to do with character in nature than it does with origin. If you see the word begot, or born, or child, it has more to do with origin than it does to do with any of the other characteristics of a human being. So when it says sons of God, it's in in essence saying they have some of the same character and nature of God. God's chosen people, for example. The angels who were perfect at the time they were called sons of God. Righteous people, born-again people, were called sons of God. So it can be used in numerous ways, not simply, as that one passage would indicate, that they were the sons of God. And I don't have time to go into Job, but I believe Job, when it talks about the sons of God, is simply talking about Job and his family. Satan was a usurper when he came among them. Again, don't have time to go into all of that. Now, men are seen in this passage as the controlling factor Mankind are the ones making the choices. Over and over again, it tells us that. The exterior is not the most important. Did you notice what it said? And follow along with me in verse 2. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. In other words, they had an exterior view of what was going on around them. Now, I'm going to tell you, God did a great job when he made women. You are all better looking than we are. Praise the Lord. Amen, guys? Okay, thank you. Don't try to be super spiritual because women are definitely better looking. Nobody's going to doubt that. But you know what? That concept is found over and over and over and over again in Scripture. 
It'll get you in trouble if you just go by your eyes, go by what you see. Do it real quickly. The Egyptians saw Sarah, saw she was beautiful, wanted the Pharaoh wanted her for a wife. Uh, the nephew of Abraham, Lot, he saw the well-watered plains of Gomorrah, and he coveted them. He was greedy, and he wanted them. Got him in big trouble. How about when they saw the Nephilim when they went in to spy out the promised land? It caused them to fear instead of to act in faith. How about Achan when he saw the beautiful things that God said, don't take any of them, destroy it all. He took them. Greed again. How about Samson? He said, hey, get that Philistine woman for a wife for me. She looks good to me. How about that? Got him in trouble, didn't it? How about Proverbs chapter 23, verse 31? It says, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Hey, there are a lot of things in this world that look good. And believe me, they'll make you feel good for a while. Except that if you go by the external only, you're going to get in trouble. And that's exactly what the sons of men, Cessline, did. You see, they were to hold a righteous standard. That's why I said they didn't do what God expected them to do. They went down to the level. I'm telling you, as a Christian, as a church, don't ever go down to the level of the world. My lifetime and in the past couple of years that's accelerated, the church has gone downhill. And I'm not, that's not my sermon today. But we've gone downhill because the church hasn't taken a stand. Christians haven't taken a stand. Don't do it. We know what the end result is. God will and does bring judgment. And so they took these wives. We know from the future in the law that they were to make no covenant whatsoever with the people of the land to give their daughters or to take their daughters. It's always on the patriarchal side. They weren't supposed to do that. Why? Because they were racist? No, they weren't prejudiced. That's not it at all. He said, when you do that, you'll start to worship their gods. In other words, the natural inclination is downhill. That's exactly what happens when you compromise. That's what happens when you don't use spiritual discernment. The New Testament is very clear. Be ye separate. Don't have fellowship with unbelievers. Don't have a contract and don't be in cahoots with unbelievers. Don't be bound together with those. Notice what it says. The men chose for themselves whatever they chose. It had nothing to do with God's standards. It had to do, we want to do what we want to do, and we don't care what God says. I believe that's the bottom line of this whole thing. So, there's a lot of other things that could be said here, and I've probably gotten way ahead of myself. Doing your own thing will bring trouble. By the way, it's fun when you do it. It's easy to do it, because you kind of go with the flow. Hey, it's easy. It'll bring you trouble. Spiritual factors are more important. Ethical, moral, and spiritual issues are much more important than the things you see on the outside. <clears throat> Number four, the Nephilim. One of the teachings that usually comes with this passage, and I, of all the people I tried to look up to, to see what other people said, I found one person who got it right. You might think I'm a fathead. That's okay. You can do that. I challenge you to look at what exactly what the scripture says. And here's what it comes down to. The Nephilim are not the result of the intermarriages. 
I can prove that. It's right here in the scripture. It says um, in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of man uh, came to the daughters of, uh, sons of God came to the daughters of men. Notice what it says. They were already there. They could not be the result. Now, Nephilim simply means somebody that was a bully, a tyrant. Other places, uh, later on, we find out that the Nephilim, indeed, were big guys. They were bigger than normal. Uh, They had some size, power, and depravity that was a little more than the normal. Fact is, when the spies went into the promised land in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, it says the Anakim are part of the Nephilim. Simply this. The, the men of the, the land were large people. It says that in the verse before, verse 32. But it says the Nephilim, uh, you know, their, their descendants were there, the, the sons of Anak. And they also, as we can find other places in the Old Testament, were large people. So giants is not a stretch to translate it that way. It simply means somebody that has fallen is a bully or a tyrant. That's what a Nephilim is. They're more a type of person, most likely, than genealogically that way. Again, they could be genealogically, but uh, there's a couple of things we'd have to discuss with that. They were there when this happened, not as a result. Now, the result of it is going to look a lot like the Nephilim. So I understand why people mix the two together. But I do not see that biblically at all. And uh, if they were already there, they couldn't be the result of that. So what do we take from this whole thing? Is this. The result is something different. They were distinguished from, biblically, from those men of renown, those mighty men. So let's look at who these mighty men were. These are indeed the result of the people coming together and going downhill spiritually and in every other way. It says they were mighty men. If you were to translate this from other places in Scripture, you would say they were mighty warriors. They were champions. They were heroes. They were people that stood out among the rest of the people. And how did they stand out? Because they were righteous and holy and faithful? The answer is, we know from a few verses from now, that it was just the opposite. They stood out. And yes, they did some pretty horrible things. They were, of old, men of renown. In other words, these were not people who rebelled in their closet, in their home, behind the walls. These were people that did what they did and everybody knew it. Men of renown means everybody knew it. It, They had a reputation that went with them. And it was not a good one. They were powerful. They were persuasive. And they definitely overstepped the bounds that God had given to human beings. See, our role is that God has created us to commune with him to worship Him, to fellowship with Him. And they said, hey, we're going to do whatever. And here's what happens. If we pass on to the next generation, they will take what we had as an inch and make it a mile. You ever notice that? I'm telling you, if you're a dad and your kids, you're doing something in front of your kids and you go, well, you know what, I can get away with this. I know how to handle this. Your kids look out and say, hey, dad did that. 
It's okay for me to do it. And they don't have the same governor that you have. I'll tell you where it really comes down. I'm a pastor. Some of you actually knew that. You know what? What I do as a pastor, and this is the heaviest part. Preaching sermons and teaching is not the hard part of being a a pastor or counseling people. That's not the hard part. The hard part about being a pastor is because I am fully aware that what I do as a human being affects a whole lot of people. Oh, Pastor Paul does that. I guess it's okay. Well, maybe I've dealt with it. Maybe I can handle that. You know what? There are a lot of things I don't do that maybe aren't even wrong. But I know one thing. They could easily put a wrong concept to somebody. So my life, my example, my testimony is more important. And some of you are going, I know that guy for a long time. He's a problem child. Well, you know what? I'm working on it. But I know this. My example is important. My example is important. You go, okay, you're a pastor. Hey, that's great. Now, you're a mom. You're a dad. You're a grandpa. Hey, you're a student in school. You're a neighbor. You're a coworker. I don't care what it is. You have an influence. And I, I remember this. When I first got saved and, and I was working construction, I talked like everybody else, acted like everybody else. You know what? When I got saved and I made that known, they would go, oh, is that what a Christian does? Oh, it made me mad. You know what? But immediately, what did they do? They held me to a higher standard. Guess what? They were right. They were absolutely right. Because guess what? If I'm not going to be the example, who is? In this case, the sons of Seth just went downhill. Just because they were the sons of God, the sons of Seth, does not mean, just like Israel, does not mean that they did everything right. That they were all righteous. That they all followed God. They simply did not. And here's what happened, is the godly line became corrupted. When the godly line came corrupted, then everything became bad. See, Cain was already corrupted. That was, that was a given. We knew that. They followed his, his genealogy is right down the line. They followed him. Well, that's, not, that's a problem, of course. But when the godly line, those that claim to be faithful, those that claim to be righteous, those that claim to follow God, when they go downhill, that's when everything goes down the tubes. And I'm sorry to say, but as a whole, the church today is doing exactly that. Just going downhill, just following the culture right down the tubes. But these men did basically whatever they wanted to do. And, by the way, the Nephilim, I already mentioned this, they existed after the flood. So if they were some result of angels and men cohabitating, uh, then that's still happening today because the flood wiped out all of them. To end with four minutes and three facts to go, let's do this real quickly. Verse 5. Then... Notice, after this had been happening for a while, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil and only evil. Mankind had gotten to the point where depravity had just took over, taken over, and everything is going downhill. And God says, I'm going to judge. God does judge and will judge. He has promised to do that. You might, it may look like you're getting away with it. By the way, for about 120 years after God even mentioned this, it still went on. 
took a while. God, God doesn't jump to conclusions. But when he sets and says, this is what I'm going to do, he does it. And he brought judgment. In fact, as in the New Testament, we find out, like the days of Noah, it's going to be, and when the coming of the Son of Man, it's going to be there marrying and giving in marriage. Life's going to be normal. Everybody's going to think it's okay. That's exactly what was happening before the flood. Things continued as usual. Normal things happen. And they're like, hey, you know, God's not going to judge. We don't worry about God. Truth is, not true. They were continually evil. And notice what it says. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. The word sorry comes from a word that means a sigh. Sorry fits it. God is going, I don't believe this. Not that he wouldn't know that. He is God and all that. But how far down man can go and just... Just seeing it. Just took the breath out of him. And then it says that he was grieved in his heart. The word grieve actually has in it the whole concept of pain and grief and hurt and those kinds of things. But it also has something else that goes with that. And that's the word carve, like you cut something. Here's what it comes down to. You did it to your parents, and your kids may be doing it to you right now. But it's like they took a knife and just cut your heart right out and yanked your heart out. That's kind of what it's saying about God. The way men were acting, the choices they made spiritually, ethically, morally, practically, and every it just was like they just ripped God's heart out. I don't know how you could pull out any more stops and give a graphic picture of God's interaction with people than this passage. Man just simply did whatever they wanted to do. And God says, I didn't create you that way. I didn't provide for you that way. But you chose to do it. You're ripping my heart out. That's my interpretation. It's not exactly, you know, there. But it does say, you know, to hurt, to grieve, to distort, to carve, to displease God. And then he said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from the animals, uh, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky. I'm sorry I've made them. Same word that we saw before. But he says, I'm going to blot them out. Now, I got to tell you, that is a very interesting concept. I don't know if you remember this. Some of you don't even remember what chalkboards look like. But back when we had chalkboards, all day long you'd write on the chalkboard. Well, then you would erase it. Yeah, it took out most of it, but you could still see the numbers and letters that were there. At the end of the day, if you were the chosen one, you got to go get a sponge, wet it, come back in, and take the whole board out and look like a brand new blackboard again, right? Some of you remember that. Somebody told me after the first service, we only got to clap the erasers. We didn't get to do that. But you know what? Here's the whole point. God didn't just say, oh, bad people. You know what? You shouldn't have done that. You know, kind of blotted out. I mean, uh, blurred out a little bit. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to judge. And when I judge, I do it right. In this case, it wasn't a sponge full of water. It was an earth covered by water. 
It wasn't some local, I'm going to blot out a tribe here and a family here. It was all people. But Noah. That's why I have to end with that. But Noah. There was one person at least. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't know a whole lot about the other seven people in the ark. I know something about them, but not a whole lot. But here's what I do know. One person in that ark, God could say of them, he was a righteous person. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. One person. Because, see, God does judge sin. But also, God is gracious to those that are faithful to him. I need to end with one passage. because you And, and I'll pick this up in the future. But the New Testament is very specific about Noah. And I'd just like to read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 6 and then going into verse 7. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That's the context for chapter chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, in the midst of all that downhill... Continually evil thoughts. God having his heart ripped out. There was one person that God could point to and say, this man is faithful. I'm going to be gracious to him. He is faithful. And we know that in the midst of that, he was a righteous man and a preacher of righteousness during that whole thing. See, he was willing to take a stand. Didn't matter that everyone else, it seemed, was going downhill. They were going the wrong direction. They were living in sin and rebellion against God and did their own thing. He took a stand and said, Not me. A little bit like later on, Joshua said, As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Now, it's not said of, Moses, or of, of, uh, of uh, Noah, but it's that concept. That in the midst of everything else going the wrong direction, somebody took a stand. I challenge you the year ahead, make that you. Before God. Oh, you'll fail. But then renew it again. The point is, we need to see. Today is not a whole lot different than Genesis chapter 6. But you can be that Noah. You can be the person who takes a stand makes wise spiritual decisions. The spiritual dimensions, the ethical dimensions, the moral dimensions are way more important than all of the other things of this world. And there are plenty of them. The fact is, in most cases, those things look good, and the end result is they take you downhill. And the biggest one is those relationships that we have with the opposite sex. And that's a whole other sermon, but the truth of the matter is, that's where it came. They just saw what, and they said, hey, that's what I like, that's what I want to do. God says, not the right, right way to go. You need to be faithful to God. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer.